0: Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, is a story, an unparalleled story. It's a story like no other. It's a story about hope in the midst of utter hopelessness. It's a story about redemption from disastrous circumstances that were all but irreparable, unfixable. It's the story of an impossible remedy made possible through the most unlikely unpredictable and truly unimaginable actions of the one person who had more reason than anyone else to not do exactly what he did which was to sacrifice himself in order to rescue us from the very end that that we the human race had both earned and deserved the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ and just before he left this earth he gathered his disciples his followers and he said I want you to share this story my story I want you to share it with everyone that you can in fact I want you to share it with all people everywhere doesn't matter their ethnicity their background their station in life no matter what religion they subscribe to where they live how they live or what they're living for I want you to tell them my story I want you to tell them about me Tell them about the hope that I'm offering them, and if they're interested, invite them to follow me. And because I know you'll never be able to do all of that on your own, I'm sending you my spirit to come and help you accomplish that. And as we discussed last week for Christians, believing all of that has never really been the problem. It's, It's the doing part that we struggle with, isn't it? We know there's a calling. We know there's a a commission, a plan, a purpose for us to carry out. We just, we just want to carry it out on our own terms. We want to do it in a way that we're comfortable with because, hey, I, I've worked hard to get where I am, right? I've earned this. I've created a life that works for me, and so I'm, I'm good with God's plan as long as it fits into my plan. And so a lot of us, I think, we put some gospel into the parts of our lives where it fits the best, where it works for us. And the result is that the world around us, all those people who we're supposed to be sharing his story with, they hear us telling the story, the story that is supposed to completely revolutionize the way that we live, that's supposed to make us different than the rest of the world. They hear us describing this extraordinary life that Christians are supposed to experience, a life full of faith and power and joy and peace a life of selfless devotion and continual sacrifice not a perfect life but one that perseveres faithfully through our troubles one that is willing to admit it when we've messed things up and then won't cease until we've restored what's been damaged as far as we're able a life that places more value on what's right and whatever happens to be a trending in pop culture, a life that responds to every relationship and every circumstance and every situation based on what God's Word tells us, not on what our feelings tell us. It's a life that puts others first and God at the center of everything that we say and do. And, and look, I think we've done a pretty good job of telling them that story for the most part I think the world is hearing the message the problem is what they're hearing doesn't always line up with what they're seeing because we can tell them what we believe all that we want to but if our actions if the way that we actually live our lives doesn't mirror what we say that we believe then no one else is going to believe a word that we say it's the difference between believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus Christ which we began talking about last week and there is a difference yes of course we must believe in Jesus Christ we must believe that he is who he says he is and we must believe what he taught but we have to do more than just believe him we must also trust in him and trust in what he taught otherwise we can spend our lives believing without ever following and we looked at examples of that last week which not only does us no good but in its empty words for a world that desperately needs to see and experience men and women who are truly following Jesus Christ not just believing in him and following him demands our trust so why don't we trust God That's the question that we began to answer last Sunday in the first half of this message. And we're going to complete that study with the second half this morning because there are predominantly two reasons why we don't always trust God. There are lots of reasons, but you can boil them down to about two. Two obstacles that keep people from moving beyond mere belief in Him to actually following Him. The first being fear. And again, we went through that last week, so we won't revisit that today. Although if you missed it, Uh, You can download that message on our website or YouTube channel. But today we're going to talk about the second reason that we often fail to trust Him as we continue to work our way through uh, John's account of this gospel. And it is essential in our ability to move beyond mere belief into a life spent actively following Jesus. It is essential that we get a firm grip on what it is that keeps us from following Him. And then, of course, the remedy to those obstacles because Jesus is looking for followers and to be honest so is the rest of the world okay it it is good and necessary that we share information about the gospel yes but that alone is insufficient for making true disciples because people need more than just information they need evidence they need evidence that what we say we believe is true And listen, that evidence is us, okay? So let's pick up the story where we left off last week at chapter 20, and we'll talk about the second obstacle to trusting God. We'll begin with the first 10 verses, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You have to love the fact that John's talking about himself here. <laughs> and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So this is the third day since Jesus was crucified, as Mary Magdalene And as we learn from the uh, Synoptic Gospels, the other three Gospels, that some other women went to the tomb with her where Jesus was buried in order to complete the burial preparations, which could not be finalized initially because Jesus' death occurred just before the Sabbath. And Mosaic law prohibited any work, of course, from being done on the Sabbath, including burial preparations. So the work that was done on Jesus' body by Joseph of Arimathea And Nicodemus and probably uh, some of their servants was a rush job intended for just the initial burial until final preparations could be made later. And so Mary and the others make their way to the tomb on what John says is the first day of the week. And just as a brief aside here, since John brings it up, the first day of the week for the Jews was Sunday, which is why most believers set aside Sunday as their normal day of worship today. That's also what we see uh, the disciples of Christ doing in the first century, immediately after Jesus' resurrection, which they call the Lord's Day, as a weekly celebration of his rising from the dead. And we find references, references to that uh, in different parts of the New Testament. Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16:2, uh, Revelation 1:10, and, and there are other non-biblical Historical writings from the first and second centuries and beyond that confirm the early church meeting on Sundays. The epistle of Barnabas uh, being one first century example. As well, Ignatius wrote about it early in the the second century, uh, 115 AD, I think. And then later in the same century, Justin Martyr wrote about Christians worshiping together on Sundays in chapter 67 of his work titled First Apology. And then in the 3rd century, the Catholic Church came along and mandated Sunday worship uh, there somewhere in the 3rd century. But the historical record shows that the Christian church across the entire ancient world, from Christ's resurrection on long before the 3rd century, worshiped together on Sundays. Now, there are Christians today, as you probably know, who choose to gather on Saturdays, the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh-day Of the week and worship on that day listen that's absolutely fine there there's actually no problem with that and I'm not being critical of that Uh, to be completely honest I've no interest in debating that because I've had that conversation and probably heard every argument on both sides many times over many years and so rather than cling to a Jewish observance or a Catholic mandate I simply hold to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2:16 through 23, where in response to a faction of false teachers that had risen up at the church at Colossae who were advocating for the continued practice of several Jewish observances as being required for spiritual advancement, Paul instructs them. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world And I just wanted, first of all, to simply point out the reason why we happen to meet on Sundays in our tradition. You know, it's actually not to replace the Jewish Sabbath. We meet on Sundays because that is the first day of the week, and that is when the Christian church met to worship ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a celebration of that resurrection, not as a replacement of the Sabbath. But here's the real point to be made. It's the point that Paul's making here as Christians under the new covenant we're supposed to worship God every day every day and then in addition to that we're supposed to all gather as a local body and worship together on a regular basis and whether we do that on Sundays or Saturdays or Tuesdays it doesn't matter what is truly important is that we don't neglect meeting together as we're instructed in Hebrews 1025. Okay, so that's all just for some clarification as to why we gather when we do, because people ask me that from time to time. Let's keep going in our story now. As Mary and her friends get to the tomb, much to their surprise, the stone at the entrance has been rolled away. And with zero thought to the possibility that Jesus may actually be alive, Mary runs back to Peter and John and tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. And the fact that she says we do not know where they have laid him is confirmation uh, that Mary wasn't alone, which corroborates the accounts given in the other Gospels. And so Peter and John then take off, run to the tomb. They find it empty, just as Mary described, but with one added and very important piece of information. The linen grave cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in were still there and not only were they still there but at least some of them if not all were neatly folded and placed within the tomb which is very significant because no one robbing a grave and make no mistake there were grave robbers in the first century who would commonly target the tombs of the rich and yet the very last thing that a grave robber would do is take the time to unwrap a body while still in the tomb during the act of stealing that body right and they certainly would not have taken the time to neatly fold those linen cloths up before they left with the body. Nor would anyone moving a body for some legitimate reason unwrap the linen cloths from it first, which is why when Peter and John saw the contents of the tomb, minus a body, John says he saw and believed. Now interestingly, in the next two verses he says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, and then the disciples, went back to their homes. So even though they believed, he says they still did not fully understand what was happening, and notice they didn't go looking for Jesus. They didn't go to the familiar places where he often led them that John talks about earlier in this gospel. They didn't go around asking if anyone had seen him. Now don't you think if you had dropped your entire life to follow this man, become a disciple and followed him, For the last several years, giving him all of your devotion, giving him everything you've got. And then he's crucified and now missing, maybe alive. Wouldn't you go ask somebody if they'd seen him? Wouldn't you at least go look around outside the tomb? (laughs) John says they simply went back home, which I think highlights once again the difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. The disciples had faith. We know that. They believed. But their faith had yet to be fully realized because there was a missing component, as we'll see as the story continues to unfold. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 15. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped, uh, stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. So Mary has witnessed the stone rolled away. She's witnessed the empty tomb. She's witnessed Peter and John believing that Jesus is alive. She's witnessed the grave clothes in the tomb. She's witnessed two angels who have suddenly appeared there. And she's currently having a conversation with Jesus himself. But Mary is unconvinced to the point that she can no longer control her emotions and can't stop weeping so everyone's asking her woman why are you weeping right despite all of the evidence pointing to the fact that jesus is alive mary is overcome by doubt which is the second great obstacle to trusting in jesus christ fear being the first and then doubt and the two usually go hand in hand but before we're too hard on mary I think we have to be honest with ourselves because despite all of the evidence, and there is no shortage of evidence, by the way, historical evidence, empirical evidence, circumstantial evidence along with many eyewitness accounts from credible sources to support the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In spite of all that we have, as you know well, there are many, many people today who doubt the resurrection. And I'll just tell you that as long as you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Although it is important to be honest about that. But as long as you doubt, you will, never, you will never be able to fully trust in Him or in His Word. Because without a resurrection, all that we have is an empty religion. How can we possibly rely on anything that He said or taught if He died and stayed dead, right? The validity of the entire gospel is altogether dependent upon Jesus getting up and actually walking out of that grave. And if we're not convinced of that, if we doubt that, then the world who we're supposed to be sharing that story with will most certainly not be convinced because people can see right through our truth claims if we ourselves have no confidence in them. I was a police officer for several years just after college, which seems like a lifetime ago. You probably know what I'm talking about here. When someone is telling you a story, And I've heard some really good stories. If the person telling you the story is not absolutely convinced of their own story, you can see right through it. Every time. The Apostle Paul understood this very well in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain we even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay? Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead then what are we doing, right? If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, what is our faith based upon? If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we all need to go home and find something else to do. Because none of this means anything without a risen Christ. And it is that same doubt that keeps people away, that keeps them from trusting him. It's why instead of looking for him, instead of following after him, they simply go home and go on about their business. And again, before we become too critical of others, how often do we as believers doubt God and his word? Jesus said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28:20. 20. But I can't tell you how many people believers who I've counseled with over the years who doubt whether or not that statement is actually true they don't say it that plainly of course but it comes through in how they live their lives and how they make their decisions in how averse they are to risk anything for the sake of the gospel I've known many Christians who have strong doubts as to whether or not Jesus is always with them and yet they will tell unbelievers that they should put all of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and all the while, those unbelievers are thinking, well, you don't, so why should I? And Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12, and 13. And We repeat these verses often, don't we? But do we really believe it? Are we really living our lives that way? Mary Beth read it earlier. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I mean, really, guys. How familiar are we with these passages? If you've been in church for any amount of time, I imagine you're very familiar with them and we say that we believe these words of Jesus we even quote them to other people to encourage and teach them to believe as we do but listen if we're lying awake at night drowning in stress and anxiety over what's happening in our lives because we doubt the veracity the the truth of this word then let me just tell you no one is buying it because they can see when our own lives are not characterized by what we're telling them theirs ought to be it is a hard sell to convince someone that they can wholly trust in the word of God when we don't and I'll just let you in on a little secret here at times in my life I've been one of those Christians one of those believers who tells people what they should trust in when I've doubted the very same thing in my own life while I'm telling them people aren't stupid they see right through it so what do we do then? Well last week we talked about fear being an obstacle to trusting God and then we talked about the remedy to fear which is the perfect love of Christ that casts out all fear. We talked all about that today as we look at this other obstacle to trusting God which is doubt. and we continue reading the story we find the remedy to doubt and honestly I've been waiting all week to tell you about it because it is something that we desperately need in our lives. So let's jump back into the story as we find several more examples of doubt among the disciples. And in each case, we find the remedy that removes every doubt. Let's read verses 16 through 18. As Mary now has nearly become completely unraveled in her own doubt and fear as to the whereabouts of Jesus, who happens to be standing right in front of her. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary's eyes and ears are open to recognize Jesus in what is truly a beautiful reunion. And she's so overcome that she takes hold of him and obviously does not want to let go. And Jesus not as a rebuke, but as a reassurance tells her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, it's okay, Mary. You can let go. I'm not going to the Father yet. I still have to meet with my disciples. Go tell them. I still have more to do before I ascend to heaven. And of course, we know that he was there for 40 more days or so, visiting with them and teaching them (laughs) before he left the earth. And so he gives Mary this task to complete, to go back and tell the disciples that he was alive and would be ascending to the Father soon. And so she faithfully does what Jesus tells her to do. She goes to the disciples and announces to them, I have seen the Lord. And that little phrase, I have seen, in the original Greek language is the word horao, which among other things means to experience. You see, Mary wasn't simply saying, hey guys, I just happened to see Jesus in the garden. No, she was saying, I have just experienced the Lord. Mary had an encounter with the resurrected Christ and it removed her doubt in an instant, which is precisely the same remedy for the doubts that lurk in the shadows of our hearts and minds that rob us of our peace and steal away our sleep when trouble arrives at our doorstep. Those doubts that linger in the background of our lives and feel as if uh, we've been all turned upside down, just as Mary had here. It is in those moments that we need not only to know about Jesus, we don't just need to have information about Jesus, we need to have an encounter with Jesus. Remember back in verse 8 when John says that he saw the empty tomb and believed, and then he and Peter went back home. Well, what are those believing disciples? doing now that they're back at home. Let's keep reading. Verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, for if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the disciples saw the empty tomb and they believed. And then they went home and promptly locked the doors for fear of the Jews. Okay, there was no lack of belief, but there was most certainly a lack of trust because they were huddled in the house, afraid for their lives, even though they believed that Jesus was alive. Listen, it's not enough for us to have an intellectual assent to understand and accept that Jesus rose from the dead. We do need that, but we need more than that. We must also have an encounter with the risen Christ if doubt is to be replaced truly with trust. And that's what we see in the story. John says that Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And you guessed it, it's the same word from Mary's encounter, hurrah. When they experienced him, they were made glad. So the disciples are huddled in fear even though they believed in the risen Christ. But John says they were glad and, by the way, out in public after several encounters with the risen Christ, which we'll see in chapter 21 next, next week, because only then were their doubts removed. We must have an encounter with the risen Christ, our Savior, if we're ever to be able to confidently trust him it's not enough to know about him. We must know him. So how do we encounter the Christ? Well, the answer is revealed in this passage. First of all, in verse 19, Jesus appeared in the room with his disciples and he said, peace be with you. And then in verse 21, he repeats that statement again. Peace be with you. The fact that he did that twice carries with it deep significance which any scholar worth the salt will point out because just before his crucifixion the last time that Jesus was gathered in a room with these disciples much like he is here he said to them peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid John 14, 27. And then he shows up in this room after his resurrection with these same disciples, much like he was before, who instead of being full of this peace that he left with them, they're now huddled in fear and doubt about their own future, despite the fact that they believed that Jesus was alive. Their hearts are definitely troubled. Their hearts are definitely afraid. And then he says to them as he shows up in effect Remember when I told you twice that I was giving you my peace? Well, here I am. So peace be with you. Peace be with you. In other words, I just made good on my promise. You can trust in my word. It's not just good ideas for the history books. No, my word is living and active, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us. So first of all, we encounter the living, risen Christ through his living and active word. So when our lives are swirling with doubt, we can encounter him, experience him through his word. Not, Not because we're merely studying some words on a page. In John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, we can read the Bible and believe what it says and miss Jesus altogether. It's not about simply reading his word. It's about encountering him through his word. Well, how do we do that? In verse 22 in our story, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, we encounter the risen Christ through his word and we encounter him through his spirit in us. And the two work in tandem. They work hand in hand. They are inseparable and always in agreement. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's the exact same thing he said about his word in John 5.39 that we just read. So Jesus says, my word bears witness about me and the Holy Spirit bears witness about me. The two work together in our lives to bring about the exact same result. So the doubt that keeps us from fully trusting him is replaced with peace as we encounter him through his word and through his spirit. But if we're not encountering him consistently in our lives through his word and through his spirit, then what is there actually in our lives that is bearing witness to others about him? If we forego time in the word and with the spirit in our lives, the two things that bear witness about him, if we forego that, what is left in our lives that is going to bear witness about him? All that can be left is whatever we can produce in the flesh by our own ability. And as it happens, the disciples tried that too. Let's see how it turned out for them. Verse 24, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, (laughs) his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Jews, first of all, always include the starting day whenever they referred to a number of days being counted. So eight days later was actually the following Sunday, exactly one week after the resurrection. And here they are again gathered together, doors locked, as we know they weren't all there together a week ago when Jesus appeared. At least we know that Thomas missed out on their previous encounter with Jesus. And so here he is with them now. Jesus shows up and he calls Thomas out. Knowing that Thomas is full of doubt, Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. And then Thomas utters what R.C. Sproul refers to as the highest confession of faith in Jesus that we read anywhere in Scripture. Instead of calling him Master or Teacher or even Messiah, when he calls Jesus Lord, he uses the same word that is used in the greek translation of the old testament for god's highest name yahweh thomas had an encounter with the risen christ and he was transformed by it but then jesus says something that at first glance seems peculiar after these encounters with his disciples to encourage them and reassure them and validate his resurrection in their eyes. After all that, he chastises Thomas for wanting to see him and touch him before believing that he was alive. So what gives, right? It's because of Thomas's heart. He had put all of his confidence, all of his trust in the flesh, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that his followers would need to encounter him. So he gave them his word and he gave them his spirit, but for Thomas only the flesh would do. He wouldn't settle for anything less, and yet that's exactly what he was settling for. Far less, which is why Jesus rebukes him. In uh, John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, J.D. Greer says it this way, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And so when Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, the word believe there is the Greek word "pistuo," which means, are you ready? To put our trust in. Jesus was saying, put your trust in me, Thomas, not in the flesh. And when John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The words believe and believing in that verse 31 are both the same Greek word, pistuo. He's saying, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, you may have life in his name. We have to trust him. Okay? Jesus wants to reveal himself to us, he does. He wants us to encounter Him and we must if we're ever to fully trust Him which is the only way we've any hope of living lives that actually bear witness to the transformation that He works within His followers. But if we're not encountering Him consistently in our lives through His Word and through His Spirit then what is there actually in our lives that is bearing witness to others about Him? There's nothing left except doubt and fear and whatever we can try and conjure up in our own flesh. This is the conundrum. This is exactly the problem that the church is living with today. We have believers who are not interacting with the Word of God and the Spirit of God on a consistent basis. Believers who are not encountering Christ but are at the same time telling non-believers that they need to have an encounter with the Christ but if there isn't anything in our lives that is actually bearing witness to the resurrected Christ which again Jesus made clear is his word and his spirit then I'm asking you what what we're actually offering people what is it? it's information instead of transformation Jesus is the only thing that can transform anyone's life there is nothing else There's nothing that we can produce in the flesh that can transform anyone. You can go to church and give to charities and join the Red Cross. You can get a personal trainer and eat nothing but salad and vitamins for the rest of your natural life. But there will be absolutely zero eternal transformation in your life because it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can truly transform us. And so... I go to these church conferences for pastors and they're constantly talking about how the church has to become more uh, culturally relevant and in tune with what's trending and aware of social media and sensitive to people's preferences and, I, and it's all well and good and I get it. It's fine. But honestly, I don't believe that is the first thing that people are concerned about or even necessarily looking for when they step foot into a church for the first time or in a very long time. Right or wrong, I have a very strong conviction that people are actually desperate for an encounter with Jesus Christ, whether they even realize it or not. And a lot of them won't consider stepping foot into a church ever, but they'll have coffee with you. They'll hang out with you while your kids play together at the park. They'll come over to dinner if you invite them. They'll even let you tell them about your belief. But if there's nothing there that is actually bearing witness to the Christ in your own life, if your beliefs are not authenticated by real evidence that you've actually been with Jesus Christ, that you've had an encounter with Him, then all you're doing is sharing information. And I'm telling you, I believe that's exactly what what is plaguing the church today. Believers who are not followers. Believers who have yet to fully trust Christ in their own lives and so they're full of great information. But they're equally full of fear and doubt. And all that is needed to remedy that is an encounter with him. William Penn once said, The adventure of the Christian life begins when we dare to do what we would never tackle without Christ. What a great line. You see, the gospel is a story that we're a part of. He wrote us into his story and it's full of adventure and mystery. It's full of wonder and beauty. It is fraught with risk and full of promise. Unavoidable loss, yes but so much more to gain it is his story and because he wrote us into it it is our story and in it we don't just learn about him no, in this story our lives are supposed to be in a continual encounter with him that's the only life worth living so let's give it all we've got and then trust him to see us through it let's pray